It was the early 90s. I was 12 years old, and my parents, alongside our little youth group at this little church that we grew up in, went to a production at a very, very large, almost mega church in the center of the city where I grew up in. And all of these churches and youth groups and young adults were invited to come and be a part of it. And the production was four nights long, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we were there Thursday night for opening night, closing night, and all of the nights in between. And over and over and over again, we heard and saw the same thing, heard and saw the same thing. This production was about a group of people who lived a certain way, and as a result of their certain way of living, it determined their eternal destiny. Some of their stories were amazing. Uh, in fact, very few of the stories were about their, their ascent into the heavenly realms alongside Jesus in the heart, the presence of God, and the majority of the place was about the people who did not go there, the people who descended into the fiery torment of hell and what they did in this life to get them there and what the, their eternal being looked like once they were there. And every single night, the pastor would stand up in a lectern just like this and would give an altar call. And every night as a 12-year-old boy, even though I got saved, I rebuked my life of sin when I was like five years old. Um, every night I put my hand up and I came forward to the altar to get saved over and over and over and over and over again. The name of the play was Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Maybe you've heard it before. And something took root in my soul that night that changed it for the foreseeable future at the time. And what took root that night was fear. Not love, not peace, not reconciliation, not rescue, but fear. The fear of a God who is angry at me. The fear of a God who at 12 years old would send me into the fires of hell for the behavior that I had walked out in my short life, the fear of God who hates sin and what is evil, and the fear of eternity that is separate from God in a torture chamber called hell. Many of us have had that experience. Many of us have grown up in churches or church traditions or in a uh, biblical um, religious environment that convinces us that the way to salvation is through the coercive fear of punishment as opposed to the meta-narrative of Scripture and the New Testament examples of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are saved by grace through faith and that perfect love casts out fear. Instead of being compelled by the loving and rescuing move of God and the grace of Jesus, we have been trapped into and confused by an ideology that God wants to send us to an eternal torture chamber, and this is not the way of Jesus, my friends. If you are here for the first time or maybe the last time, this is not the way of Jesus. So my friends, as we begin today, let me ask us, what does Jesus save us from? What does Jesus save us from? I would invite you to close your eyes and take 20 to 30 seconds and in your mind, think about that question. Process it for a few seconds and take note of what imagery and ideologies come into your consciousness. What does Jesus save us from?
Brothers and sisters, in this day, in this moment, in this cultural moment, in in the, the consciousness of our world, we are faced as Christ followers, or if you're here and you are spiritually investigating the notion of being a Jesus follower, we are faced with the dilemma of the dilemma and the polarity of the church and Christianity, of churchianity, and the challenge of being a more Christ-like, Jesus-oriented Christian. And so welcome to our series for the month of November, where we want to answer and dig into those questions. What does it look like to be a more Christ-like Christian, as opposed to someone who just attends a church on a Sunday, or somebody who at some point in their lives has decided, you know what, maybe Christianity is the right religion, and I'll check it out a little bit deeper. We want to look at some very familiar teachings of Jesus to better understand, okay, so what does Jesus save us from? That's today. Next week, does Jesus like want me here on Sunday? Is the religious check mark for me attending church, a religious institution, a religious body gathering at church on Sunday? And Jesus is like, you got it, love you. Uh, week three, are there people and trends that Jesus wants me to avoid? And what does faith mean? Week four, Does Jesus live in like my aorta, one of the chambers of my heart? Does Jesus live in here somewhere or is it much, much deeper? And in that, we want to look at some very familiar gospel teachings of Jesus today. Jesus and Zacchaeus, shout out to the short kings, I see you. I don't really, I'm too short. Week two, uh, Jesus, Peter, and the gates of Hades. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Week three, Jesus and the good Samaritan. Are there people that we tend to walk around as opposed to towards as Jesus followers? And then week four, Jesus and the woman who is bleeding, cast out by religion and Jesus calls her daughter. You ready? You ready? All right, turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 19. Um, If you're here for the first time, we have been living in like Luke Acts for the last little while. We're actually taking a step backwards to look at one of the most convincing, I'm convinced, uh, Jesus teaching about salvation that does not embed this coercive nature of fear and anger of God, but the wide open doors of Jesus that accepts through his grace and redeems somebody whose life is locked into sin and distance from God. Okay, Luke chapter 19 verses 1 to 10. Luke chapter 19, the story of uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus. How many of you have read this section before, or you've been in Sunday school and seen the flannel graph? Yes, a few of us. Uh, one of my favorite memories as a kid in this tiny little church that I just told you about is we had our, our mainstay um, like Sunday school teacher was a wonderful old man and like he would teach, but then there was this other guy who would come in sometimes and he was Scottish. And I loved how he, he taught us this passage. He was like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. All right, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And he was the chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich or wealthy. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. I feel seen right there. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass by his way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quickly come down. I want to be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were grumbling or displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner again, they grumbled. 
But meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus responded, salvation has come to this house today. For this man has shown himself to be a true descendant or son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Okay. Okay. So, so much is happening here. Uh, Jesus has begun his journey from the north to the south to go to the, the temple in Jerusalem, upset the apple cart, so to speak, and then be crucified, dead, and resurrected to repaint a picture of how God offers himself in sacrificial love so that we might follow that same way. On his way, he's going to pass through. He's, he's coming from Galilee. He's heading uh, towards Jerusalem, and he's passing through Jericho. Now, this is a fascinating addition of, uh, addition of, uh, of Luke's gospel here. Jericho was, was a, um, an oasis town. It was a, a hotbed of financial activity. It was a customs town as well. So this is like the Southern Florida or like Hawaii of, of, ancient, of the ancient Near East at the time. This is where the rich people went to either vacation and get away from it all. This is where the rich people fleed from the, the harboring of religion in the temple. And this is where rich people went to make more money, to live in a context in a city that was beautiful and to stay far, far away from the poor because they could not afford to live there. Does this sound familiar to anybody living in our context today? This is where the rich people said, you know what, I deserve this. I'm gonna get away. I'm gonna put my money somewhere else and I'm gonna enjoy my time. I deserve this. I've saved up for it. Here's where I am. And Jesus heads towards this spot. He'll later um, go to Jerusalem. But if you notice in the chapter before, Jesus heals a blind beggar. And Luke's gospel records that on the way to Jericho, he encountered all of these people that are lining the road to and from. There's wonderful, wonderful ancient history that shows us that um, typically rich, uh, poor, and sick people were not allowed within the confines of Jericho, but would line their way to and from the city towards the city gates and outside in hopes that the political people, the political powers um, that were rising up in culture at the time or the people that had the most money would give them a handout. And Jesus starts meeting with these people, touching these people and caring for them outside the city, healing them, healing them, healing them of their disease. Jesus walks into Jericho and we, this is the first time that we're hearing about Zacchaeus, which is interesting. The Greek word, uh, the Hebrew word, sorry, Zacchaeus means innocent and righteous one. I'm going to say that again. The word Zacchaeus means innocent and righteous one. So we are getting either a play on words or somebody who has deviated from the call of God that was on their life from birth. Innocent and righteous one and brother Zacchaeus, you have departed so far from it. And now notice what Luke does. Uh, Jesus is going to pass by probably a main artery in the city to meet with people or to head to the other side of the city, the outside gates, to connect with and heal people again. And Zacchaeus hears about, in some way, shape, or form, hears about this Messiah who is redeeming the world, convicting of sin, but conforming uh, religious folks, sinners lost, and sick people to a new way of God, a new covenant, a new promise through grace. And so Zacchaeus gets down on the road and cannot see Jesus through the obstacles. 
Think about that. The imagery that Luke is trying to get at the heart of this section of scripture. He cannot see Jesus through the fog of people and religion. And where is Zacchaeus at this point? He's alongside the poor people. Luke is making a point to say Zacchaeus had to stoop. He was in and amongst the people, not able to see Jesus for all of the things that got in the way. And then what does Zacchaeus do? Oh, well, maybe I'll just push these people out of the way. Oh, well, I'll just go home. I've got enough money. It doesn't really matter. No, he climbs a sycamore fig tree. Now, again, as a good Jewish boy or girl, that would arrest our mind's attention right away because what is a common imagery throughout the meta narrative of Torah and to this point, Jesus' teaching and later in Paul's teaching, it's trees and roots and branches, the things that, that, that uh, hold up our faith. The branches and the leaves that actually support these birds that will come in and make their nest have safety in the confines of this new way. Zacchaeus then climbs this tree, climbs the ladder, the support system of faith so that he can see the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer, the redeemer who is passing him by, but Jesus does not pass by. Zacchaeus doesn't ask anything. He gets up in the tree and he looks down so that he can just see, so that he can just see. And what does Jesus do and say? He looks up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to cast you into the furnace of hell for everything that you've done. No, brothers and sisters, no. If ever there were a New Testament instance of somebody, not just the the religious people who Jesus will have no patience for uh, in in the New Testament, but somebody who, who is far from God, who is brokering the relationship in between Rome and the Jews through taxation, who is stealing, who is ceremonially, uh, unclean, who is living in the lap of luxury, and who is employing many tax collectors underneath himself. This is what a chief tax collector does. He likely would have had 10, maybe 15, maybe 20, like subordinate tax collectors under him. And as people in power and politics go, as you go up the ladder, it gets worse and worse and worse. This is somebody who should have been judged right away. And what does Jesus say? Let's go have some snacks. Jesus, I mu- uh, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. Quickly come down. I must be a guest to your home today. We've covered this before, but think about this. In Eastern hospitality, I mean, this isn't the same as our Western customs typically. That it's like, want to go for a one-hour coffee, and then I'm going to pretend I have a phone call so I can get out of here? No. This is a multi-hour, multi-day, perhaps a week-long stay. You would never just go for like a quick snack and then bounce. Jesus is staying in the home of a man who has stolen from his own people, who is living in a city of opulence and likely is in the lap of luxury. Many, many rooms would have been in Zacchaeus's house. And Jesus does not judge him, doesn't say anything. says, I'm just going to dine with you today. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord, stood in proximity, stood in front of Jesus and said, I will give half my wealth to the who? The poor. This is fascinating. Not back to the people, not back to who who uh, I've stolen it from, not back to Rome or to the Jewish people, to the people who need it the most. 
the people who need it the most, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody on their taxes, I will give back four times as much, which by the way, is what Torah required. If you have stolen or if you, you've indebted and not released people of their debt after a certain time period, you must, based on God's law, repay them at least four times as much. This is, would have been a multi-year process as well. Imagine finding all the people through your network of tax collectors to give back, to give back, to give back, to give back. Zacchaeus has been arrested by the love of God and the brokenness of his own conduct and sinful scenario. And he decides, I can't do this anymore. I have been arrested by love. The savior of the world who comes and dines with me who initiates the relationship with me, who offers nothing in the form of punishment. In fact, the next thing that Jesus says in verse nine, Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. And the brilliance of Jesus in that first word, salvation has come to this house today. He uses the, um, the, the feminine um, uh, verb of his own name. So it's Yahuashua, which means sal- salvation from God uh, and his own name. He's like, I'm here and so is your f- salvation. It's come to this house today. The representation of God in the flesh and the work of God in the spirit through the grace of God in love. Here today with you, this person, Zacchaeus, whom everybody hates, Jewish and non-Jewish, whom everybody hates, the tax collector whom everybody just wants to burn. Jesus says, this person's saved. Salvation has come to this house today for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. So then brothers and sisters, what does Jesus save us from? Sin and separation. Very quickly, I wanna cover six concepts that I think we get twisted sometimes. What does Jesus save us from? But that's not enough. What does Jesus save us through? And then what does Jesus save us to? What does Jesus save us from? What does Jesus save us through? And then what does Jesus save us to? So what does Jesus actually save us from? Again, Luke 19, no mention of hell, no mention of eternal punishment. The work in, G- in, Jesus, uh, in Zacchaeus is initiated through love, connection, and correction, through relational and spiritual healing and re- rescue, through, through snatching somebody from the grip of sin. Jesus saves us from sin which is anything that clouds or gets in, our, in the way of our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Augustine of Hippo in the third century writes it like this, the inward state and habit of the soul that transgresses leads away from God and leads us away from others. This is sin. I'll say that again. Sin is the inward state and habit of the soul that transgresses or leads away from God and leads us away from others. Jesus, my friends, saves us from the fog of the habit of sin that moves us away from God and from each other. This is what Jesus is rescuing us from. This is salvation that Jesus is inviting us into and away from. Jesus saves us from sin and Jesus saves us from separation. Presently and Eternally, N.T. Wright in an interview with the BBC said, the, uh, talking about hell and eternal punishment and how, what is that transaction here and there, he suggests that the meta-narrative, the, the um, 
broad arc of the story of scripture, including the New Testament, the meta narrative of, of scripture does not use eternal conscious torment to describe eternity apart from God, but rather most consistently separation. That is, he says, the long path of dehumanizing, the conscious and habitual choice of going one's own way and not the way of God, which has been formed and planted in every human being. And so he says, at the end of one's life, God honors that choice of those that depart from it and the separation becomes final. And this is in part what Jesus wants to save us from, from being separate from the will and the way of God and anything that clouds our relationship with God or anyone else. Jesus saves us from sin and separation. Okay, so should we talk about hell a bit? Okay, Jimmy, I hear you, but are you just a universalist? No, I'm a hopeful universalist. Wouldn't that be amazing? But there seems to be the justice of God as well. Notice I did not say the anger of God, or I would not use the term wrath of God as a coercion mechanism to pull people into salvation. It's interesting, I've heard so many pastors, not theologians, not necessarily historians say, Jesus talked more about hell and money than anything else in the New Testament. And if you've heard this before, bless you, it is an absolute lie. It's not true, that's not true. Jesus talked about the misuse of money and do you wanna know what he talked the most about in all of the gospel accounts? The kingdom of God and the rescue of poor people. So if you want to know what salvation looks like, if you're interested in following Jesus for the first time, this is what you are invited into, into heaven crashing into earth, into the kingdom of Jesus making its way and roots in and among us, and by virtue of that being inspired to serve those who are less than us or less fortunate. That's what you're invited into. So what about hell? What about eternal conscious torment? There are about six or seven sections of scripture. And by the way, this is, um, I'm not going to be an exhaustive in my treatment of hell right now. We are dropping a, a podcast tomorrow called On Hades, uh, Hell, and the Hereafter. I will invite you to wherever you find uh, your podcast, whatever platform you use, go ahead and have a listen to that where we'll be diving. There's about five of us who are talking a little more in depth, uh, depth of what does this mean? Uh, what happens after um, death? Jesus Jesus talks about six or seven times using the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna uh, in ancient Israelite custom was the Valley of ben Hinnom, which is outside of Jerusalem. And in ancient Israelite history, this was a place where the god Molech required infant sacrifice to appease his wrath. And so children were being killed, sacrificed, firstborn sons were being sacrificed in this valley. Up to the time of Jesus, it was a refuse dump outside of the city uh, for um, garbage, for excrement, and also dead bodies who had no affinity and no relationship to their family. They were improperly disposed of, and so they were dumped outside of the city, uh, figuratively and literally outside of the presence, the city of God. Uh, And one commentator on the gospel says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It was literally a dump that had been set on fire to consume what was there so that nobody else would be made unclean. Jesus uses this word six times. There's one other example uh, in Luke chapter 16, where um, Jesus talking about um, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, right? And so the, the, the Lazarus is at the bosom of Abraham, the banquet table of the divine, and uh, the, the rich man is in Hades. Jesus does not use the word hell. He uses the word Hades, and it's sort of this in-between. It is not about eternal punishment. It is about what 
what the misuse of money does when there are poor people all around you that you're not willing to care for. And Jesus has very little patience for those kinds of people. The second thing that I would say as it relates to um, hell or Gehenna, it is, it is I would contend, um, it, it's separation. It's eternal separation. It is, it is not torture. I think we've gotten it twisted and we have more work to do to get there. I just don't see it in scripture, that God would create a place of eternal conscious torment that a 12-year-old or a 5-year-old or an 85-year-old would go to. But there is the risk of being shut out, cast out, and, and pushed out by our own volition outside of the will and the way of God. And Jesus talks in explicit and divisive language about that. Do you want to know to who? Religious people. Religious people. You are in danger of the fires of hell. Do not fear the one who can just like harm the body. Fear the one who can cast you into the outer darkness of hell, separation from God. It is the religious people. There's not one instance in the New Testament where somebody who is genuinely lost and seeking and hurting, where Jesus uses coercive fire to draw them in. Are you still with me? Are you still with me? Nobody walking out yet? Okay, we've solved hell. So Jesus saves us, I would contend, from sin, from the fog that keeps us from the heart of God, and from separation, from eternal separation from the heart, the love, the shalom of the divine. And what does Jesus save us through? What are the heart-oriented mechanisms that Jesus like employs to care for and to coerce us, to compel us into this loving relationship with God? Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 if you want to memorize a beautiful letter, a portion of a letter of Paul that gets at the heart of this new covenant reality in Jesus, it's this one. For grace, you have been saved through faith. Oh. For by grace, the unmerited favor of God that is given to each and every one of us, the unmerited favor and grace of God, you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's not your own work. It is a gift from God, not a result of work so that anybody can get like ego in the way, so that religion can't get in the way, so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship, beautiful creation, created in Christ Jesus to sit and chill on our couches. No, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for you, for me, for us, before the dawn of time that we would walk in them. Amazing. There is good work that we are called to do, that the divine has planted the divine in our heart and has reconciled us through the grace of Jesus that we would have a faith in, a relationship with him, and do good work here and there. Faith is a beautiful emblem of relationship with Jesus, and that's week four of our series, so I won't steal Laura's thunder. Grace, the unmerited favor and acceptance from the heart of God. Faith, the intimacy and relationship initiated by God in Jesus. And then what is it that Jesus saves us to? Are you ready for this? What is it that Jesus saves us to? Wholeness and communion. Wholeness and communion. Jesus is reconciling your life and mine, rescuing us from a life that we were never meant to live in sin and separation and restoring us, rescuing us to a life of wholeness, of being fully loved and fully human. 
You are not a sinner in the hands of an angry God. You are a child that is loved by the mercy of God in joy. Wholeness, being fully loved and fully human. Communion, being fully accepted and intimately connected to God. Oh. Brothers and sisters, you have been saved to wholeness and communion. And this is what Jesus is calling Zacchaeus back to. Repentance and a reforming of who, he's live, who he has become and how he is living. It's not that Jesus is just like, whatever, dude, like, let's have a drink. It'll all sort itself out in the wash. No, he's confronted by the holiness of Jesus. He's confronted by the love of God in Jesus, but he's also changed by the compassion of Jesus that wants to be there with and for him to change what his outlook of life is. He's calling him to repentance, a reforming of who he is, how he's living. And Zacchaeus knows immediately he doesn't need to read more books. He doesn't need to see a weekend play. He doesn't need to fill out a connect card. He doesn't need to put his hand up at the end of the sermon with every eye closed and no one looking. No more journaling. He knows how he's living. He knows how he's harming himself. He knows how he's harming others. And he can't see God in Jesus because of it. And Jesus redeems all of those things. Zacchaeus turns away, turns around. No longer is his vision of God or others blurry. He's living and returning to the good work God created him long ago to be a part of everything in Zacchaeus's life and spirit and soul has changed. He dines with Zacchaeus. Jesus sees him as how he was meant to be. He makes fellowship and communion with him. And he announces that salvation has come to this home. And we're invited to do the same. To turn away, brothers and sisters, from what's physically, emotionally, and spiritually killing us and blurring our vision of Jesus and towards the Jesus will and the Jesus way of being, wholly loved and intimately connected. And Jesus communes with us, connects with us there by his spirit. This is the summary of Jesus' teaching that we're made to love God and love others. This is the whole of the law and the prophets. This is what Jesus saves us to, that we are literally rescued by God, our hurt being healed, our sickness being removed from us and reconciled, our separateness moving to connection with the divine and the lost being found and loved by God's heart as a parent and us being loved as God's kids. Us being loved as God's kids. So friends, what does Jesus save us from, through, and to? Jesus saves us from sin and separation. Jesus saves us through grace and faith, which is a gift to you, a gift to me, a gift to us from God. And Jesus saves us to wholeness and intimacy with God. So brothers and sisters, when, when you find yourself struggling, when you find yourself struggling to see God through the fog of sin, the heavy weight of religious baggage, whether presently or historically, may you hear the voice of Jesus saying to you, you're forgiven, I'm here, walk with me, follow me, start there. Or when you find yourself like gripped with the fear of the question of eternal fate, asking like, where will my destiny be? May you know and experience the saving love of Jesus that casts out all fear and has rescued you and restored you to this life and the life that is to come. And when you're asking yourself, but how could Jesus save me? May you be met with the hope of just how beautifully made, wonderfully loved and radically you are accepted in the eyes and the heart and the mind of Jesus, who is the great redeemer and rescuer of your soul.
And may we be convinced and conform to the love and grace and compassion of God in Christ Jesus now and forever. And together we all said, Amen. Amen. Jesus, thank you for the gift of salvation, that you come to us, not us to you, that you initiate this relationship. Help us to put aside the fog of sin, put aside the fear of punishment, and engage in this forgiving, loving, compassionate reorienting, rescuing relationship with you. Thank you that by your spirit, you dwell within us, that you form us into the likeness of your son, Jesus, that you move us towards love and compassion, that you redeem us body, mind, and spirit. May we be a church that invites people into that experience. May we be people who are the intersection of heaven and earth. And may we be people who engage in the process of rescuing this world, following you, helping heaven to crash into earth in every way possible. And it's in his name and for his sake we pray, Jesus. Amen.